Let's turn this morning to a very familiar text, one that's often quoted and read during the Christmas season, and rightfully so. At times, I feel somewhat inadequate to teach this particular passage and others like it that are very well known, for I have in my flesh this idea of what can I do, what could I say, what could be added to a story that these folks know very, very well. That's not a good way to think, by the way. The gospel account and the details surrounding the conception and the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, are so essential and so theologically profound that we need to come back to them over and over again. The risk is the more repetitive we are with stories, sometimes the more they are apt to change. In this particular passage of Luke 2, has a general sense that the narrative takes on some mistakes and some untruths and some details that are added that are outside the biblical account. So in that, I want to give you a test and see if we, uh, see if we pass. The typical Christmas image is on the screen. Christmas cards in the nativity scene often depict something like this and They usually include a bright, shining star, like you see there over that image. But the truth is, on the night of the Savior's birth, uh, the shepherds were not told to look for a star, were they? Uh, The star doesn't belong in this very image. In fact, they were instructed to look for a baby born in the city of David, which was the birthplace of David, Bethlehem, and look for a baby that was wrapped in swaddling cloths and look for him in a manger. That image that was on the screen before this began was the manger, a typical manger, a rock-hewn feeding trough for animals. The star belongs in a scene, but it's a later scene when the Magi come. And as you and I know, the Magi don't come for some time later, probably when the Lord was a toddler. Uh, They make their way to find him. We get a hint of that because Herod declared that all the kids two years and younger should be executed, all the the males born in that region. So we get little hints of that. Wise men don't belong in the scene, though they are there. You'll find it in your house as well. I'm ashamed to say it's in my house too, where we want the baby with the wise men surrounding. The wise men are way more pretty, aren't they? They're way more decorative and I keep telling Kay, I need to move those three guys off that table and put them at the foyer because they need to be making their way over there, (laughs) not there with the baby on Christmas, but she will not move those things. (laughs) And the scene often puts them as how many wise men? Three. But actually, the Bible doesn't tell us that there are three wise men. It actually says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, The days of Herod the king, the wise men came from the east. We sing the song, we three kings of Orient are. And that makes sense. Because if you were going to sing, we until number of kings we are, that doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, we kind of want to put a number to it. So maybe because they were bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, we think, okay, each of them had a gift. Okay, but the story's embellished there. As the story goes, Mary and Joseph are searching for a place at the Motel 6 of Jerusalem, and they can't find a room, right? The no vacancy sign is flashing, and if you've ever seen a drama, maybe it's a kid's drama, you find that Mary is like 
over 39 weeks pregnant. And Joseph is timidly knocking on another door, hoping an innkeeper will have room. And the guy opens the door with some frustration. He's like, "Ah, no vacancy, and slams the door in their face. And off they go to another place looking for room in the inn. The Bible doesn't say that as well. Doesn't mention an innkeeper. In fact, the common word for inn in the Bible is not used in the text. It's the word kataluma. And kataluma means a guest room. It, It can mean... Uh, what you and I would know is an inn, but they didn't have inns like that in, in that day. It was a, a gathering place for people that were traveling by. Uh, didn't offer food, didn't, didn't offer anything but a place for your animals, some water for them to drink, and a, a gathering place for people to seek refuge. Most of that happened in homes. The rabbis would say, if you go to Jerusalem, you could never say, I didn't have a place to sleep and I didn't have a place to eat because the culture was so hospitable to welcome the brothers and sisters. But yet there's no no room for them in the so-called inn, as we put it. So how about those animals? Uh, Jesus uh, was unknown to be born among animals. The scripture never tells us that there are animals around. Now, I know this is the kind of stuff that gets preachers fired, but I've been here long enough to think that you're not going to fire me about this. Uh, but I know I'm, I'm, I'm walking in some unsteady ground here because we, we don't like it when we sing away in a manger and the cows are lowing as the, the baby is, is sleeping and awaking. But it seems reasonable to us that if there's a manger, if there's a feeding trough, there's got to be some animals. So we put them in the image, but the Bible does not mention that. Uh, animals actually could live on the lower floor of the, of the house with the family. They, they were few and cherished in number. So if you had one, it might be that you would bring it in and put it in the lower level. So if we took that image and just marked out everything that I said wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't have much left, would we? Okay, you got to get that image off because that will get you fired. Some of you may have given me a, a Christmas card with that image on there and you're thinking, oh, George, what have I done? It's going to be okay. The Lord is a gracious God, merciful, loving, caring, providing, offering you forgiveness right now. (laughs) So in the end, I'm not so worried about retelling you the narrative that you're familiar with because it is powerful. So let's take our Bibles together and read chapter 2 of Dr. Luke's account of the gospel message. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the kataluma, the inn, or the guest room. Teach us, O Lord, by your spirit. Help us to have open eyes to your word, an open mind to your thoughts, and an open heart to your way and will. In Jesus' name, amen. Three quick 
points that I want to draw your attention to is one, the prophetic location of the birth of our Savior. The Bible gives us details of God's providence. It tells us that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus so that all the world in the Roman Empire would be registered. It was a taxation for the Jewish people. And each of them were prescribed to go to their hometown. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, the place where David was born, Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Now that's a big deal because God had made a promise that Messiah would come through that house. The Messiah would come through David's offspring. Now every detail that Luke gives us in this passage is part of God's sovereign and providential work. In fact, God is sovereignly working providentially through the leaders and the the uh, decrees and the registration that was bring, brought about at this time in order that the prophecies would be fulfilled and everybody would be at place at the right time as the prophets had foretold. The prophecies surrounding the Messiah's birth are really remarkable. If you've taken time to read them, you know. Passages like Micah chapter 5 verse 2 stand out to us. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, it's the old name for Bethlehem, describing exactly where that is. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Not just a ruler, but ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem, this small and seemingly insignificant place, was made famous by the declaration of God from Micah a few hundred years before the birth of the Savior. From you shall come forth from me, one who is ruler in Israel. So that brought obvious anticipation for the people. Knowing that God was going to bring Messiah, Messiah would come to be the ruler of Israel, and he would come to Bethlehem. Now, you and I know that David was the great famed king who was the, uh, the greatest, if you will, over the leadership in Israel. He came from Bethlehem. He was born there, raised there. Uh, he, he was made famous there as a shepherd. Uh, he, he became the great wonder of Israel in their leadership. But he is not the king that Micah is talking about. In fact, David was born a couple of hundred years before Micah and. Uh, had long given his rule and leadership to Israel before Micah even mentions this very prophetic passage. So the Old Testament readers would have understood that the Ancient of Days would be an unlikely leader. And you, you can hear the, um, the teachings of what this leader would be like from many of the Old Testament passages. Uh, one seems very unusual. It was from a Jewish man who actually leaves Bethlehem to go to live in the land of the enemies, the Moabites. He leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread, and he goes to a place that is a desert wilderness. Uh, what, what people would consider in the day, this is quite literal in the translation, the armpit of the world, Moab. So this man by the name of Imelech sends his family along with himself to that place. Naomi and his two sons go there to sojourn during a famine. But they don't just travel there for a reprieve. They actually settle there and remain. 
Elimelech, as you know the narrative probably, has died, leaving his wife and two sons there alone in that place. The sons take on wives of the Moabite women, but yet the sons die as well. So now Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law from another land, and she decides to get up and go back home. And she encourages them to travel with her, but then she reflects for a moment to say, now, I can't offer to you sons. I'm not going to be able to bear sons at my age and present them for you. I don't have a a means by which you can live. Um, And so one goes with her and one returns back to her home. Ruth goes with Naomi. And upon their return, the whole town stirs up. Is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. Is this Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. That's not my name anymore. My name is Mara. It means bitterness. For the Almighty has dwelt bitterly with me. I left full, but I come back empty. In that moment of despair in her life, she did not recognize that God was extending grace and mercy and love to her. Sometimes hardship does that to us. It it makes us a little bit blind, a little bit unable to see where God's mercy and grace is being extended. It's often not till afterwards when we reflect back by the understanding of what's happened that we see the gracious hand of God along the way. We ought to ask him continuously in those hard times, Lord, let me see you in the midst of this. Let me know you in the midst of my sorrow and in my pain and my suffering. But Naomi couldn't do that at that moment. There in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was coming in, Ruth began to glean from the fields. It was the, the way of welfare in the day. The, the farmers were not to, glean, to take all the, the uh, barley, the wheat, the harvest. They were to leave some behind and let people come and just glean from the edges or glean from what was left behind. And Ruth is there because they are impoverished. But there's a man named Boaz who owns a field and he takes kindly to her because God is working in his heart and he's bringing together a match made in heaven. And he tells her, you stay in my field. And he begins to move in grace and mercy with great love towards Ruth. And he makes his intentions know. She makes her intentions know as well that she wants to be with him. And he lets the whole town, the the leaders know that this is who he wants to marry. He is a kinsman redeemer. He is extending love and mercy and grace in the name of his God. Soon the whole place would be celebrating a wedding that would take place of that old man Boaz who now had a wife. And after the wedding, the couple actually have a son and they name that son Obed who is the beloved grandmother of Naomi. Now she has a heart full of joy. She recognizes God's grace and love in her life more fully now. The woman from Bethlehem who thought her life was going to be full of bitterness and couldn't be anything but Mara now finds that it's full of joy. She is the great-grandmother of who will become King David. Later, David's birth puts Bethlehem on the map. The village produced the most cherished kings of all the the Hebrews. David was a mighty conqueror. What a warrior he was. What a leader, what a royal leader he was. But Bethlehem has a greater king from whom came. 
The prophet Micah prophesies that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth was from old, ancient of days, the Messiah. Catch the wonder of Micah's words, what he's saying here. He tells about a future king who is actually of ancient days. He tells one who is the eternal son of God, who has forever been, who will be born in Bethlehem to be the leader of Israel. And might I just say, he will not only lead in Israel in his messianic kingdom, but he will lead the entire world. And could I not just go a little further to say, Micah is telling us the king of Israel, the king who will reign in the millennial kingdom will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords eternally enthroned through all the universe for all of time. And his name is Jesus. Glory be to God for that. It's clear from Bethlehem in the narrative there that nothing comes by chance or coincidence. God is working In his sovereignty and in his providence, God is planning every detail and he is bringing it about. That was true of the first advent and I can promise you it is true of the second advent as well. He is working. In the midst of our day and time, the season which you find ourselves in, in the midst of this world, God is at work And although we might have a hard time figuring it out in this moment, we will look back on this time and we we will see clearly the hand of God, the working of God as he is moving us to his second coming. God is at work providentially. So through the story of Ruth and Boaz, Bethlehem is known as the place of redemption where a kingsman redeemer has extended the love and the grace and the mercy of God to provide for those who are in need. The birthplace of the Savior, Bethlehem, is where we see God extending to us and all of mankind the love and the mercy and the grace that he longs for them to receive by faith. Bethlehem is a significant prophetic place. It's also known by its name, Bethlehem, as the house of bread. And so when Jesus, who is from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, says to the world, I am the bread of life, it bears forth. That makes sense. He's come from the house of bread. This prophetic birthplace is where Jesus, our Redeemer, the bread of life and the light of the world, was born. Secondly, I want to remind you that this birth was the birth of the Christ. Luke 2 tells us that Mary was with child while they were there in Bethlehem. And he says, very simply, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, our Catholic friends would say that Mary had no other sons, but the Scripture says differently. Uh, This was her firstborn son. And uh, Luke has documented the Savior's birth with astounding simplicity. I I love the the details that Luke builds to this point. But when it comes time for the announcement of the birth of the Savior, it is shockingly simple. And I think we ought to let that settle in because the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write this gospel message for us. And he said to Luke, I want it to be succinct and I want it to be simple. And so... I want you to see the simplicity of it. Now, don't get me wrong. The incarnation is incredibly complex. In fact, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around the idea that the eternal would actually come incarnate. 
Think about the complexity of that happening. Reaching back in eternity past before the foundation of the world, you will find the Messiah there. Think of the complexity of the divine and eternal creator taking on the form of human flesh. Think about the limitless, infinite God of the world taking on the limitations of human existence. The complexity of the all-powerful God choosing to reveal himself in the weakness of human flesh, vulnerable and dependent. You can't get more, more dependent than this. As an infant, the complexity of the exalted eternal one from whom all wisdom flows, submitting himself to grow as a baby in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and man. There's incredible complexity to this. And yet Luke actually shares the event in a very concise way without a hint of drama or embellishment. And we have to ask ourselves why. Why did he spend 70 verses linking to this point and just at the, the time of the birth just makes it so simple. Why is that? And I think it might be that the surroundings of the event are far less important than the prophetic fulfillment of the incarnation of Christ. In other words, Luke focuses not on the peripheral circumstances around the birth of Christ. He wants all eyes on Jesus, the Son of God born of a virgin. And so he makes that matter of fact the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. So Luke's writing is simple. Matter of fact, the birth of the Savior was a conclusion. He's been building in detail, and now he's just making a concluding fact. It happened. He'd been foretelling about it in great words and, and uh, understanding, and now he's just saying, and the conclusion of that, it happened. Now, bear in mind that God has been building all this time throughout history. He has been building to the details of this moment. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's God in the midst of the curse, announcing the curse of sin. God is announcing that there would be one born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. What he's saying there, there is a, an offspring coming of woman who will actually destroy the one who has provoked the sin in the world and brought it about, and he will destroy him. And he will destroy and defeat all the consequences of him, the sin, the death that he has brought about. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he communicated that covenant again, reinforcing it to his son and his grandson Isaac and Jacob. And he said to Abraham, I will give to you an offspring, and in that offspring I will bless all the nations of the world, a reference to the ultimate salvation that would come in Jesus Christ. It's a building of this moment. And the exodus was God provides a Passover lamb who would protect the Israelites from the judgment of death that was sweeping through the land of, of Egypt. He was pointing ultimately to the Savior Christ our Lord, which John referenced when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' own blood would be what cleanses us and takes death away from us. When God promised to David an everlasting kingdom, through a descendant of his, he was pointing to Jesus, the son of David, who would reign forever. And when Micah prophesied about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, it's all a movement of God giving us details of this moment. And so Luke, when he says, it happened, 
He's thinking about all that that had been discussed prior to. And he has written to Theopolis this grand narrative of all that had been building in his, in his uh, time. If you will, go back to Luke chapter 1, and you'll find that there was a messenger named Gabriel who was sent to, by God to Mary in verse 31. And behold, the, the messenger says, you will conceive Mary in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua in the Hebrew, it means God is salvation. You shall call his name salvation. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The son of the most high. When, when you are a son, you are bearing the essence, the image of the Father. And so what he's saying is, in you is the Son of God, God himself, bearing the image of God, the essence of God, and the will of God, the equality of God. And Jesus would be the descendant of David, a very messianic way of describing this one who had been promised from long ago. Mary's line brought about the messianic way for Christ. It was foretold that Jesus would reign eternally. And so this baby in Mary was told to her to be the eternal one that had been prophesied about. He would lead through the millennial kingdom and lead throughout heaven's reign as well. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Now this is not a doubt in Mary. This, this is a question of, hey, I don't understand what you're talking about. I've not been with a, a man. I know how this works. I've been through biology 101. I recognize procreation, and I hadn't had any part of that. How is this going to be, she's saying. And the angel answers her and gives you and me what is the basis of our understanding of God's great work in her and our salvation. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Amen. Now, this is different from any other birth. This is different than any other conception. I shouldn't say it's different than any other birth. It's the same as any other birth. It's different than any other conception. Every other conception requires a father, requires a mother. This one required the Holy Spirit and the woman. God was working in a divine, mysterious, and a miraculous way. The conception was the divine work of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might say, well, I, I kind of wonder about that. Could it be that a virgin could conceive? Well, if you believe that God stepped out into nothing and said, let it be, and it was, then you can believe that the Holy Spirit would bring the conception about in this woman. Certainly we can. So what a wonder it is that this Holy Spirit, who we know so personally because he dwells within us, has brought conception to Mary, the very Son of God. And what a wonder that is because Jesus had no earthly father. Why is that important? I'll tell you why that's important. Because every father passes along the sin of his father, passes along the sin of his father, passes along the sin of his father, all the way back to Adam. The Holy Spirit brought conception in Mary, and when he did, he brought holiness to her. Holiness was in her womb, the Holy Son of God. 
And he went on to describe, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, hey, Mary, God is at work. And the very relative of yours that everybody thought was barren in her old age, she has conceived. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Similarly, the angel said to Joseph over Matthew chapter 1, in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. This message of salvation, this message of holiness, of miraculous conception is just repeated over and over and over. The details are there. So Mary makes it a beeline to her relative Elizabeth. And in those days, the Bible says in Luke chapter 1, verse 39, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah, in Judah. And there she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leaped. And she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Listen to this. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. God has done something in you. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She probably knew her as cousin, but now she knows her as the mother of her Lord, the mother of the Son of God, the mother of her Savior. She understands this. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are you, Mary, because you believe what God said. Blessed am I, for you are going to bear forth my Savior, the one who will bear my sins and bring my salvation. Understanding the magnitude of God's grace and mercy extended to her through Jesus Christ, who was in her womb, Mary begins to break out in song. And part of that song is what we just sang, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices the God of my salvation. It's partly why we sing with such joy during Christmas, because we recognize that God has brought grace, an extension of mercy and love to us in Christ Jesus, the Savior. Blessed be the God of Israel, Zechariah says, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's holding his very son who is going to be the prophet before The Lord bearing witness of him, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for the house of his servant David. He knew that salvation was coming through Jesus. And to his son, who is John, he said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. You know what he's doing there? He's going back to Isaiah chapter 9 where Isaiah said, the people who once walked in darkness now have seen a great light. 
Why am I going back through all of this? Why am I bringing up all that narrative? Because Luke has built in this narrative great details about what God has been doing through the centuries. And might I say throughout the ages of eternity past, before the foundation of the world was even put into order, Luke is bearing to account all these details and coming to a culmination to say, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. In other words, all that that had been described from Genesis 3 all the way to this moment has now come about in the birth of the Savior. Man, Christmas. The image of that baby, the wonder of Mary and Joseph marveling at what God was doing. Zechariah and Elizabeth understanding the hope that was now given. Soon Simeon and Anna blessing the Lord for his salvation that is brought in that child. And you and me looking at the text contemplating it, singing about it, telling it to our family and friends, marveling at the wonder that she gave birth to our Savior. What a plan. What a glorious plan and execution of God in its providential way. With eight simple words, he gives us that culmination. Now, what follows after those eight words is a description of, so that the shepherds would know how to find him. The rest of the detail is for the shepherds because what God wants is not just to bring the Christ into the world. God wants the Christ to be pointed out to the world. And so he makes that known. Luke goes on to describe that Mary is wrapping him in swaddling cloths and she is laying him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no place in the Cataluma. There's no place in the guest house for him, so she's there. Now, he continues this narrative, writing that the angel of the Lord has appeared to shepherds in the field as they were keeping watch over their flock. I'm going to talk more about that tonight in a a little mini sermonette, if you will, that I'm going to share with you about the shepherds. So with the glory of the Lord shining around them, they were obviously terrified. And the angel who is speaking of the birth of the Savior says, hey, fear not. Behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now to swaddle a baby, that's no big deal. That's common. To swaddle him with cloths is not a big deal. It was common practice in that day to protect the limbs of a baby, to swaddle them in that way. But to put one in a manger, in a feeding trough, that's a big deal. So he says to the shepherds, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying there in a manger. That's how you will know. So they go into the small village of Bethlehem, which is thought to be about 2,000 in population. And uh, it wouldn't be hard to, to find the woman who had just given birth that day to a baby. And to find that woman and to find that baby wrapped in swaddling cloth as described by the messenger of God. It wouldn't be difficult to do that. 
And so they made haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Now to the shepherds, God had determined to make the Savior known, giving them instructions how to find him. And might I just say to all the world, God is giving instruction to them on how to find the Messiah, how to know him, how to believe in him, how to have faith in him, how to walk with him, and how to put your faith and trust in your eternal being in him. And he's given to us that in writing. He's given that to the mightiness of the church who is empowered to deliver that message around the world. So God has, from the very beginning, been giving instructions on how to find Jesus. And he has given that to you and me to make him known. Now let me bring this thing to an end. If you're hearing the message of the gospel today, it is because God has determined you to hear it. He is sovereignly and providentially making it known to you. It is not by chance that you're here. It's not by chance that you're listening on the radio, that you're watching on a streaming service. It is not by chance, but by the providence of God that you are hearing the good news that Christ is born. He has made himself known to you. He has made it so that you can come to know him. He is bearing forth his light into the darkness of your heart and in your mind, just like he has in mine. And he says, come. Whosoever will may come. If you're here today hearing that message, then maybe you are like Zechariah and Elizabeth whom God made ready for the Messiah, giving them knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy that God has extended. And maybe upon hearing that news, your heart is given to that truth. And if you're hearing the message of the gospel today, it could be that God has sovereignly planned from eternity past that you would be like those shepherds in the day watching over their fields, who heard, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And in God's sovereign plan, from eternity past, before he formed the world, he determined that you would come to know his son, Jesus, the Son of God. And we give you the details in the Bible through the accounts of Luke and others who were firsthand there, so that you might by faith receive him and live your life in him by faith unto his glory and forever be changed. So knowing the true story of Christmas is important, but acting on it in faith is essential. So I pray today that you will hear the message and receive it. Let me pray for you. In this moment, as you have given the light of the world and made Christ known and you have declared his glory and greatness, we have seen him as the Son of God and know him to be as he was prophesied, stated, and lived. Holy, glorious. As we hear that message, Lord, we receive it in faith. It's a faith that you're extending in grace to us. We trust you for your salvation. And we say, Lord, there is no God 
but our God, made known to us in Christ Jesus. And there is no other way to you but by him. And we declare, Lord, that our life in sin is to be repented of, that we might walk in the righteous way of our Savior. To his glory and honor, may we do so. I pray in Jesus' name.